Bible to follow along, you'll find one in the back of the pew in front of you. And if you turn to page 737, you'll find Daniel chapter 2. Before we get into the text proper, just a reminder of what it is that we are doing. As we're moving through the book of Daniel, um, we're going through a series which we've called Watch the Throne. And the tension of the book of Daniel uh, is a tension of kingdoms between the kingdom of God and the empires on earth, between uh, loving and serving our King Jesus and loving and serving our neighbors and their empire, where we are, where we live, where we operate. And of course, Daniel and his friends stand in as good examples of that. But as we go through the book, every week we're going to focus on a different trait that I think is appropriate to connect with the idea of a king. Okay, and so uh, last week we looked at God as sovereign. And obviously sovereign is so related to the idea of king that that's one of the titles we sometimes give rulers is sovereign. Um, this morning we're going to talk about our wise king. And that's another thing that at least hopefully is associated with leadership. In fact, we really feel it when it's lacking, don't we? But what is wisdom? Effectively, wisdom is knowing how to live life compatibly with reality. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is being able to see the big picture enough so that you operate and function as if the things that are true are true. Okay? And so um, what we have to recognize is the reason we need wisdom. It's that our perspective inherently as human beings, whoever you are, whatever your age, however much schooling you've gotten, uh, wisdom requires a larger perspective than you can have on your own. Wisdom is necessary because when we're in the midst of something, we can't see all the facts. We can't see all the factors. Some things are pressing in on us and seem really clear, and we have a tendency, don't we, to neglect other things, okay? To forget other things. Nick mentioned um, our friend Craig Finley, and I remember he told a story once where he was washing his car. Um, and he's, he's relatively short, and he had a big Isuzu Trooper, and so he's up on a milk crate, and he's got one of those washing gloves on each hand, and the milk crate starts to slip. And so as he's falling to the ground, he thinks to himself, I need to lift my hands or I'm going to get gravel on, on the gloves. Now, that's a true fact. It is not the most important one because if he doesn't land on his hands, where is he going to land? On his face, okay? Recognizing gloves aren't important right now is wisdom. That's what we're talking about, okay? That's why wisdom tend to, tends to have a heritage. It tends to have a history. It tends to be uh, set up in sayings, entrusted from parents to children, passed on from generation to generation. Okay? That's how wisdom functions. It reminds us of the bigger picture as we're living in the context of our everyday life. Okay? Now, the book of Proverbs is like that. If you read it, it's tremendously practical, and it's basically a gathering of these broad lessons that we've learned. But even Proverbs says, this is the beginning of wisdom, the fear of God. In other words, if God is, that has direct impact on every decision we have. If God is and we act as if God is not, then we live foolishly. Okay, that's the idea. Now, one more thing we need to lay out is there's, there's two types of wisdom. There's observational wisdom. That's just 
over a long period of time, us as a community of human beings have learned and observed these things. And so we keep them in cue. But there is also hidden wisdom. Okay? And this brings us to the idea of revelation, of God making known realities that we couldn't come to on our own. Now, once again, even hidden realities are so real to live outside of them is incongruent with reality itself, whether you know it or not. It's, it's, it's that way with gravity. You don't have to be able to define the term to live under its influence, right? In the same way, you don't have to know that God is there for it not to directly impact your life if he live like he is or he isn't. And so what we're going to read today is about a time when King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the ruler of one of the first and largest Western world empires, the Empire of Babylon, is confronted with this reality of trying to figure out where he and his life and his rule and his purpose and his position fits in with what really is. And I think that's helpful to us to lay out that foundation because all of us live in that place. The reason why hidden wisdom is important, the reason why revelation is important, is because what is the most important thing that determines how you understand a story? The ending. And none of us get to know that. None of us have that on our own. None of us can make observational. In fact, the Bible warns us about just trying to figure out what's coming from what's been. We just go, every day's been this way, so tomorrow will be the same. Every day so far, you have woken up breathing. There will be a one day just one where that won't be the case, right? So much of our life, we think in this way, it's just a pattern, it's just a cycle, we go through the motions, you show up at work ready to do the same job you've done for 25 years, and you're fired, right? This is how life works, okay? But in the broader picture, how do you know if your life is a comedy or a tragedy? How do you know if history means anything? What if history is just like the words of Macbeth, a story told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Would that impact the way you live? Of course it would. It leads to despair. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. We don't get to know the ending, and what happens today is God, for Daniel and for Nebuchadnezzar, he pulls back the curtain. He reveals the most important fact. What is the story of history and your life in the middle of it mean? Let's go ahead and read uh, the first few verses together, and then we'll pray. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. And the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Let's pray.
Father, even as we read these words recorded for us this morning, the authors of Scripture call them to call us to read them not as just a record of what you have said or a record of those who have heard from you, but as the very word of God for us today. So I pray, Lord, that we would sit today with open ears and believe in the God who speaks. Speak to us this morning by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So what happens here? Nebuchadnezzar has a recurring dream. And the more he has it, the more disturbed he gets. He's shaken up by it. He knows somehow it's significant, but it's a mystery to him. Can you understand the tension of that? Isn't that just the tension we live in in our lives of, of just this feeling sense of importance and ignorance coexisting? It gets so bad that he can't sleep at all. He just develops insomnia. He's afraid, maybe, to go back to sleep and experience the same profound, but to him, senseless dream. And so, he calls for the greatest wisdom his empire has to offer. The enchanters, the sorcerers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. This is his internal counsel. Now, recognize there, the people he calls for uh, are not positions we generally find in our own government. We don't generally have musicians or sorcerers, Chaldeans, uh, in our government. Um, The the significance is because we've crossed over into a time where where, uh, things are different. We're going to see that the problem in Daniel's time for this council is that they believe there is a spiritual realm and they have no access to it. There's a curtain between them. They're not sure what's on the other side. We have a slightly different problem as modern people. We believe the curtain is there and behind it is nothing. Right? But remember here, what we're dealing with is a dream. And so what would the modern equivalent be if a president has a recurring dream? I don't know, maybe he'd go to a psychologist? But Nebuchadnezzar, like most Babylonians, recognizes that there's at least a possibility that a dream, not all dreams, but a dream, can be the direct communication from beyond. And the fact that this keeps recurring, the fact that it's tremendously important, and the fact that he doesn't understand it, it fits the bill for that. It fits the bill, excuse me. And so he turns to those who have made a habit, and we still have a lot of their dream interpretation guides today, and he comes to them to ask. But he asks something unbelievable. Look at it again in verse uh, 2. The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell us your dream, and we'll show you the interpretation. They go, that's great. That's what we're here for. Tell us the dream, and we'll interpret it for you. But somehow, significantly, what has served Nebuchadnezzar for the entire duration of his reign, what has served consistently for the entire duration of the kingdoms that make up Babylon, suddenly isn't enough. And he makes a new demand, and he says, actually, I want more than the interpretation. I want you to tell me the dream itself. Why does he make such an irrational request? Go back to that modern equivalent of a psychologist. 
What if you sat down with your counselor and said, I've been having this crazy dream, and they said, well, I've done some study on dreams, maybe I can help you unpack it, and you'd go, sure, but pre-qualification, you need to tell me the dream first, right? It's an odd request. In fact, notice how they respond. And so he, he says, no, you're going to do this, and it's going to work out one of two ways. Either you don't tell me the dream and die, or you tell me the dream and I will reward you lavishly. And so they respond, they repeat again, verse 7, they answered a second time. And said, let the king tell the servants his dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you were trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. In other words, did I stutter? Right? He's, un, he's just totally unflinching in his resolve. And he says, now, if you're just talking again, it's not because you didn't understand me. You're just demonstrating you don't have the means. You can't do what I asked you to do. Notice what he says in verse 9. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. What does he say? He says, suddenly, and this is a little bit revelatory too, suddenly he sees through all of these people who are the respected counselors of his kingdom and he goes, wait a minute. How can I trust that your interpretation is true when you have no access to that realm? Whoever it was who sent this message, for you to rightly interpret it requires that you actually know the person who sent it. Do you have friends like this? Do you ever get that mysterious text and you turn to one of your friends and you go, do you have any idea what this means? You only turn to the people who know who sent the message, right? You, you very rarely go to a stranger and go, can you tell me what this means, right? That's the problem that they're in. He goes, wait a minute, how can I know? In fact, notice what he says next. He says, therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. He doesn't want to be manipulated he doesn't want them to just take a good guess and solemnly swear that this is the meaning. He wants to know what has been said. And so he vets the interpreters. Now, so what we see here is that something has pierced the veil. Communication has gotten through. The divine realm has made a phone call and Nebuchadnezzar has picked up the phone, right? But he's stuck. He has no one who can interpret. And this is so, I mean, let's be honest. Nebuchadnezzar was a severe person. He has a tendency to, I don't know, overreact. Uh, he's relatively cruel and demanding. And he's willing to literally kill off his entire cabinet if this can't come to be. Not just the ones that are present, we'll see. Anyone who fulfills the position of wise man in all of the kingdom is going to die. Okay, that's how serious this is. And so we see the need here, we see the desire, and then notice the bankruptcy that they finally confess to. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not 
with flesh. What do they say? We have no access. We're on the wrong side of the curtain. The gods don't live in our midst. They don't speak to us. We don't hear from them. That's the tension that we all have this morning. That we live life, and we have to ask, does it mean something? Is there an author? Is there a creator? In a book, the significance of the story, the significance of each and every word is determined by the author. Now, if our world is just falling down the staircase of causality, A leads to B leads to C leads to D, then you can just come up with a machine that types. But that doesn't mean you've made a story. It doesn't mean that there's any meaning in it. It doesn't mean that there's any significance. But the problem is, for many of us, we have recognized we can't pull back the curtain. We can't see beyond. Like I said, as moderns, we've developed a new faith, a new belief. No one can see beyond the curtain. That was true in the old age, and so they guessed what was behind it. They speculated. That's where religions came from. That's where belief systems came from. Now, we also guess and speculate what's behind the curtain. We just speculate that it's nothing, that there's nothing there. That in the words of Carl Sagan in the opening of the Cosmos documentary from the 1970s, the universe, all there ever was, all there ever is, all that ever will be. It's a closed box. There's nothing outside of it. Francis Schaeffer recognized this modern problem and he spoke about the God who is there. I love that title. The God who is there. That's the tension here of this story. That's where we pick up. That's the question we all have to ask. And the first thing we need to own up against is the fact that we, on the receiving end, as the characters in the story, do not have the ability to discern the mind of its author. That whoever God is, we aren't going to be able to determine the most important facts from the turn of a spade, from an experiment in a lab. Science can tell us how the universe works. It can't tell us what the universe is for. That's where we live. That's what we're dealing with. But the glory of the proclamation of the Bible is not just that God is present, but that God has spoken. It's one thing to recognize that if there is a God, there's an infinite distance between us, and we will never traverse it. But it's a different thing to say, well, but if God, who made the world, wants to be made known, can he do it? Can he bridge that gap? Of course he can. We need to notice the difference between these two ways of thinking. Nick mentioned universalism this morning, and there are these, these illustrations that have become famous for justifying the fact that all religions are true, or equally false would be a better way to put it. So there's the one about the elephant and the blind man. Are you familiar with this, right? And so three blind men are groping at an elephant, trying to discern what it is, and one grabs the leg and says, it's a great tree. Another grabs the trunk and says, it's a giant serpent, right? 
Did you know that that story originally, those blind men are performing in front of a king? You see, when we do that as modern skeptics, we claim not to be blind. We say, we know that it's an elephant, just like the king did. It's just the same as a claim of ultimate truth in what it all means, as any of the religions it critiques. There's another one that's really famous with, um, with Unitarians. Okay? Unitarians are basically Christianity watered down into universalism and embracing of all faiths through the front door of Christianity. And so this is the illustration they use. It's like all of humanity lives in a church with stained glass windows and groups of humanity gather around different windows interpreting the light that comes through it through the picture of that stained glass. But it's the light that's true. The window is just the interpretation. Okay. What the Bible proclaims is that it's not us, although it does say that we're groping in the dark. Read Paul's sermon to the uh, Athenians in Acts 17. He says, all of us are groping, trying to find out if God is there. That is our condition. But if we can change the illustration of the elephant a little bit differently, what the blind men are reaching out and touching is a man. And that man opens his mouth and says, I'll tell you who I am. See the difference there? With the windows... Yes, there is light. In fact, the Bible proclaims that God is light and that he shines down on us, but the Bible also says the God who is light became a man, walked through the front doors of those church and said, I'd like you to know me. Do you see the difference there? This is one of the big questions. And we as Christians believe in the God who is there, who has spoken, who will speak, and who is speaking. That's the context. That's the tension. Now remember, this is not just about a bunch of foreign magicians and sorcerers. It's also about a handful of Jewish boys who were selected in their teenage years to come and work for the Babylonian government, raised up in all of the best knowledge and schools they had to offer, and at the beck and call of the king, which means it's also their necks on the line. And so notice what happens next. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Okay, so this is it. But this is a big undertaking. Okay, it's going to take a little bit of administration to take these things happen. First, they all have to be rounded up, gathered in. They have appointments for execution effectively. And so as this is going on, verse 13, the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now, that they is really important there. Who? Did the wise men go to Daniel and go, hey, we're in over our heads here. We know that you're a little bit smarter than us. No, no, no. This is the executioners. They sought Daniel. Okay? They sought Daniel uh, and his companions to kill them. Verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which means head executioner, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Okay, so picture this. Daniel's at home or something like that. A guard knocks on his door, he opens, and he says, I've been summoned to take you to the place of execution. Let's go. And Daniel's first question is, what's the hurry? Why, what's going on here, right? He wants more information. I think that's appropriate. I think it's understandable. 
Uh, and so Arioch fills him in. Verse 15. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel says, oh, okay. Well, I'd like to speak to the king. I'd like to tell him what the dream means. Okay, that's a shift in gears. Do you hear that in the narrative? That's not necessarily what we're expecting. In fact, Daniel's behavior here, if you don't understand it, seems tremendously presumptuous. Here, an entire courtroom of wise men are shaking in their boots saying, this is impossible. And Daniel just says, schedule me for 5 o'clock Thursday. (laughs) Right? That's what the story says happens here. You see, first there's this question, is God really there and how can we know him? And the answer we've seen is that God speaks. He spoke through Nebuchadnezzar through a dream. He wants to be known. He is the self-revealing God. The second question we have to ask, though, is how is it that we go about hearing? Hearing what God is speaking. Psalm 23, nope, Psalm 29 says the heavens declare the glory of God. That all of creation is God's great sermon on who he is. And he says it's a sermon that's true in every language. It's present in every culture. Paul pushes it even further and he says, the invisible attributes of the eternal God are clearly seen in the things that he's made. We call that general revelation. Then there's this idea of special revelation. And dreams would fall into that category. In fact, we need to recognize here, as foreign as this may seem to us, that for us as Christians, this is one of the ways that God communicates. And so the prophet Joel pronounces of what would happen in the days of the church when God sent his spirit, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and the young men shall see visions, and the old men shall dream dreams, and the servants and the maidservants will prophesy. It's a relationship with the God who speaks. And so Daniel stands in in a figure of a giant, capable ear, the one who hears. And the first thing we have to recognize here is he's confident he can hear. This is not, as we'll see in a second, presumption. This is faith. He believes that God speaks. He believes that God speaks not to mock us, not to shame us, not to mystify us, but to make himself known. He believes he has access to the God who is there. And so, in faith, he responds. And for you, whether you're a Christian or not this morning, this is the essence of wisdom. If you're going to try out Christianity, it begins here, acting as if God is there, acting as if God speaks, and orienting yourself towards listening. In Hebrews, it says this. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, for anyone who seeks God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith means acting as if God is there, believe that he is, and acting as if he can be discovered, a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You start out on the journey, it's a little bit mystifying. It's probably you've got personal questions. But even in science, we understand a hypothesis only tests for the positive, never for the negative. It's a waste of time. You always assume your hypothesis and try it out. That's what faith is. 
And all we do as Christians is constantly run the same hypothesis that God is there, that he is who he said he is, and that he wants to be known. And so that's where Daniel starts. He starts in faith. He starts in confidence. But that's not the whole story we see in him as a listener. Look at what he does next. So he makes this appointment, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven. So he gathers his friends and he says, we need to pray. Prayer ultimately is reaching out to the God who is there. Prayer is asking the God who says he's our provider for what we need provided. Prayer is asking the God who says he's sovereign to be sovereign in our life. Prayer is asking the God who is good and says he is good to show us his goodness. And prayer is asking the God who speaks to speak to us. But notice it says here that they had to seek mercy. How do they go into the prayer closet? How do they go to hear from the Lord? Do they go in confidence? Yes, we already saw that. He believes that God speaks and will speak to him, but he goes seeking mercy. Daniel doesn't, uh, you know, strut into the spiritual realm and say, all right, I'm here, the great listener, the one who knows, the one he comes seeking mercy. What does that say? He comes undeservedly. There's confidence, but there's tremendous humility. He doesn't say, Look, I know why you don't talk to the court. Those people are awful. But you know me. You know all the good that I do for you. You know how important I am in the world. None of that is on his lips. He begs his friends, seek mercy. He comes in true humility. I don't think there is anything that hinders our ability to hear God more than our pride. And I think oftentimes our prayers are not addressed to the God of heaven. So they go unheard. Isn't that what Jesus says? He tells us about two men who go into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. On the outside, one of the most respected people in his religion. And he prays and he says, God, thank you that I'm not like other people. Thank you that I'm not like him over there. That tax collector praying over there. I tithe twice a week. I've given my whole life to you. And then this tax collector in the corner, he's praying too, and he just beats his breast and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you that the one who prayed that prayer went away justified. When James says that we have not because we ask not, sometimes we ask not because we demand. And so if we're going to hear from God, we should be confident. Not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Because he is the God who speaks. Who says he's the God who speaks. The God who has spoken and desires to be known. And so we go with confidence. And as Christians, we go with even more confidence because we come clothed in the righteousness of another. And so Paul says that we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace. but he still seeks mercy. Notice here, he seeks mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. 
so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon, right? This is a personal need. He doesn't just want insider information for the sake of knowing. This is not, you know, um, some sort of Gnostic secret knowledge idea that he just wants to know what's really going on, but he's removed from the circumstances. His own life is on the line. There's a need here. And then verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Notice here two more things about the way that we hear from God. Uh, Notice what it says in verse 23. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. That's a pretty good summary of what Daniel does here. God speaks and Daniel responds. God initiates by speaking. God initiates by saying, come and seek me. God initiates uh, by creating us. We respond by seeking him. God initiates again by answering our prayers and we respond. This is what we call communication. Right? It's got two parts. It's ongoing. It's continuous. But notice here that he responds with thanks and praise. Listen, if you're a Christian here this morning, maybe God's never given you a dream. Maybe he's never given you the interpretation of a dream. But don't mistake that for thinking that God has never spoken to you. The reason we're reading the book of Daniel 2,500 years after the days of Daniel is because this is not merely the record of Daniel hearing from God. It is God's word for us today. And so when we read the Bible, like Daniel, we should go with confidence that God will speak, that it's relevant to our lives, that there are things he wants to say to us and things we need to hear. We should go not because we deserve the right to hear from God, but seeking his mercy, laying all of our confidence on his character and not on ours. And side note, that's tremendously good news because sometimes we open our Bible and we're devastated by who we are. Sometimes the thing that draws us towards Christianity is that we're just completely bankrupt and we don't know where else to turn. That's the only prequalification. The only prequalification to receive salvation itself is to identify with what God says you are, which is a sinner in need of saving. I wish we had time to look at Psalm 25 that talks about God's leading. Because right in the middle of it, one of the prerequisites for God's leading is that God leads sinners. But also, we go in expectantly and we come out of reading the word with thanksgiving and praise. We respond when God has spoken. We praise him for who he is and we thank him for who he is. And so notice here, verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you've given me wisdom and might. And you've now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. 
And so he praises God. He thanks God for revealing himself, for being the God who is self-revealing. But notice the story doesn't end there, right? There's more at stake here. Daniel doesn't just hear so that he might know. He hears so that he might speak, and that's almost always the case. God doesn't just talk to us for us. He talks to us for others. But what does it look like to speak for the God who speaks? Here we get a window of that as well. And so notice here, Daniel, verse 24, went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me forth the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. He says, I'm ready. So he goes into the court, verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, notice something with me. That's a slight modification of the story we just read. Was Arioch looking for Daniel? Was he looking for an interpreter? Did he find the one who brought the interpretation? What is he looking for? He's looking for the credit. He's looking for the finder's fee. He says, I have found the one who that can answer. And this is the problem, side note, with pride. We are totally, totally settled on pride by association. We can feel arrogant about relatively near glory. We can boast in the accomplishment of those we identify with. That's the human condition. And those who speak for God can do the same thing. We can convey and carry the word of God as a demonstration that we are on the end and they are on the outside. And I want you to notice how different Daniel is here. Antioch's presentation is you owe me big time, king. Notice how Daniel acts. Verse 26. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen in its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the wise men, Chaldean, and astrologers tried to say. And he agrees with it. He says it can't be done. None of us are capable he includes, when he says no wise men here, himself, and then what does he say next? He says, but 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Where does he put the credit? With the God who has spoken. He says, this is not due to my ingenuity, my expertise in dreams. This does not come from me at all. I have nothing to offer you today, king, but the God who is in heaven who makes himself known. He's the one who sent the dream. He's the one who can tell you what it means. In pride, sometimes we care more about ourselves as messenger than we do the message. You know what it's like? It's like carrying a film film that's super important in the days of war and putting it on the screen and then standing in front of the screen. Daniel gets out of the way. And he makes very clear here that he's no better, no different, no smarter. But there is a God in heaven who 
who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay on your bed are these. To you, verse 29, O king, as you lay in your bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, the mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. He says, the reason I have the interpretation is because God wants you to know. He says, the reason I am here today and I heard from God is not just because God speaks, but because he wants to speak to you, king. And one of the things we need to take away from this this morning is that for you to personally know God, you don't have to be smart enough or studied enough or pre-qualified. That's what he says here. He says, you, O king, God wants to speak to you. And I don't know how you see yourself this morning. But if you see yourself as someone who God does not speak to, if you see yourself as somehow disqualified from really hearing from God, as being some sort of second-string Christian, it's just not true. God desires to fill the earth with his name, like the waters cover the sea. That includes you this morning. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know his will. He wants you to be in relationship with him. And that's true of Nebuchadnezzar the tyrant. One of the things that I love about the book of Daniel is Daniel's heart for this tyrant king. It's an entire life of ministry before this throne, and it's not always easy. This is not the only time Nebuchadnezzar will overreact. It's not the only time he'll stand against the God of heaven. And we'll see he responds to this, but he doesn't become a believer. He has an utmost respect from the outside for Daniel's God, for Daniel. But then he tries to throw his friends in the fiery furnace in the next chapter. But Daniel's in it for the long haul. He loves this king. We'll see more of that in the weeks to come. But part of the reason he's able to do so is he knows that he's in the same mess. He doesn't stand with the knowledge or on the inside or in a relationship with God because he's earned it or deserved it. But because that's what God's grace is. It's always extending itself to another person, always reaching out, always speaking crying out from the wilderness like wisdom herself, saying, come and learn of me. Know me. The last thing we get here is the vision. As it's laid out on the table for us, we need to recognize that once again, this isn't just a vision for King Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it involves things that go way beyond his history. It's not just a vision for the Jews in exile, although it clearly is. Paul tells us in the New Testament that all these things were written down for us who live in the latter days, who live in the age after Jesus has come. Paul says that prophecy, which is what we're dealing with in the book of Daniel, comes from the Spirit of Christ. It's focused on Jesus. Its end goal is Jesus. When we read this dream today, this is God revealing himself and the meaning of history to us this morning.
Let's look at it together, verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty, of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. Okay, so an image here is a statue, and it's big, and it's terrifyingly big. Verse 32, the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms were silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So here's this statue, and it's got a golden head and a silver chest and bronze legs, uh, or a bronze uh, abdomen, and then the legs are iron, and then the feet are partly iron and partly clay. Okay, do you, do you get the picture of this statue? At the top, it's more valuable. Less or so as you move down to the bottom. And then clearly at the bottom, the foundation, the thing the whole thing is built upon, you have weakness. Partly of iron, partly of clay. That doesn't work. There's a reason why you've never seen a half iron, half clay statue. They don't stick to one another. They don't work together. Okay. So he sees this. But that's not all he sees, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. And so out of nowhere, there's just this stone. No human hand cuts it, and it comes flying, and it hits the statue right at its weakest point, right at these partially clay feet. But that's not all that happens. Notice what happens next. It says it broke them to pieces, verse 35. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away. This doesn't just topple the statue. It eradicates it to dust. Okay. This, this isn't just that there's this eternal weakness and somebody, internal weakness and somebody takes advantage of it and the thing falls over. This is a nuclear explosion. Not a trace of them could be found, it says, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the last thing he sees is that the stone is laying there, the dust settles, and it begins to grow into a mountain. This is the vision. This is what was so shaking to Nebuchadnezzar. We saw earlier that he knew it had something to do with the future. Now imagine you're at the top of the king of the hill, right? You're at the, the precipice. The only reason you're ruling is because you took it. And you have this dream of destruction and toppling. Paranoia. That's where the king is at. He's going, does, does this mean there's an assassin in my midst? Right? These are where the concerns of the king are. He sees disaster coming. And so here, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he's given wherever they dwell the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them, you are the head of gold. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, this statue, you're the head of gold. You have this kingdom. God has given you this kingdom. He's given you the power to make it. He's given you the authority, and the authority extends over all creation. In fact, the language here is clearly evoking Adam. Adam and Eve were given what purpose? To rule over all animals and have dominion over the world. He says, you're this king, and he says, but... Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth. 
And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And so he says, after your reign, after your kingdom, comes another kingdom, and then another kingdom, and then a fourth kingdom. Now, we'll learn more about this in detail in the chapters to come. Because this isn't the only vision that Daniel has. And they're all interwoven. They're all interrelated. But very clearly here, when we look at history, this is Babylon, the golden head. Medo-Persia, that's the silver. Greece, that's the bronze. Notice here it says that they covered the whole earth in the bronze. That's Alexander the Great, who before the age of 30 sat down and wept because there were no places left to conquer. And then iron that crushes everything by its iron fist, that's Rome. The vision that the king, of Nebuchadnezzar, king Nebuchadnezzar is given covers the next almost 800 years of history. And we'll see more of that to come. But what do we see here? A changing of guard. New governments coming in and out. And we also see a degradation and, if you can believe it, an escalation of cruelty. That it's tyrant after tyrant. It's getting worse and it's getting worse. At first, at least, there was some beauty in it. It was gold. But at the bottom, by the time we get to Rome, it's just iron. It's just destruction. It's just crushing. Goes on here. He says in verse 41, As you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw in the iron mixed with clay. And the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom should be partly strong and partly brittle. We'll deal with more of this in the future, but verse 43, As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so that they will mix with one another in marriage, but not hold together, just as the iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. So what does he say here? He says these empires are going to come. They're going to rule. They're man-built, right? It's a statue, something that we make. But there's coming a mountain. He says there are the empires of this world and they're going to turn over. They're going to roll. There's going to be destruction. But God is going to set up a kingdom. That's the tension of the book of Daniel. These overlapping, coexisting futures, the reality that is to come. And so he finishes here, he says, verse 45, Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and the interpretation is sure. Now, what can we do with this? Recognize that if this really reaches all the way from Daniel's time to the end of time, it matters for us. It puts our life and our nation and our little kingdoms, whatever they may be, in the context of history. It tells us the ending. There's a couple of things I want to draw your attention to this morning because we do not yet live in the fully inaugurated Mount Zion kingdom of God. Just as prophesied in the days of the Roman Empire, God does something new. And so what does John preach? The one who is coming. The king. What does Jesus preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. 
Daniel here looks forward and he sees the coming of the great eternal king, the Messiah, Jesus himself. But I want you to notice the contrast between these two worlds. The first is man-made, a statue built. Some beauty, some weakness, some cruelty, some goodness, but man-made. But the rock that knocks it over, not hewn by human hands, something that God does. Second, I want you to notice, obviously, these empires, temporal. Each and every one of them will pass, and as a whole, the idea of human empire is going away. But the one that's to come, final and eternal. And then lastly, these empires, they have some beauty, some ferocity. They're big, there's a little bit of glory. But how can you compare the best statue we can make to a mountain? Name one place south of Seattle where you could set up a statue in in view of Rainier and Rainier wouldn't be the star of the show. It's incomparable in its glory. Now the truth is, all of us will either attach ourselves to the empires of this world, our man-made kingdoms, or we will attach ourselves to the coming kingdom of God. In your life, some of the things that you're doing and caring about, they're going to be crushed to dust. The courts of opinion that you terror under and you shake under and you seek to please will not be standing when the story is over. The glory you strive for, the power that you seek to hold. Here, what does Nebuchadnezzar need to know? He's just a king in a line of kings. He's not some god on earth. He's not the center of the universe. He's not even the main character of the story. That's left to another king. And you know, there's another good news in here too because each of these kingdoms crushed, why? Judgment. God is going to bring about justice. Remember where Israel sits in in context of this vision, under the thumb of all four of these empires, unjustly treated, enslaved. What do they have from this vision? Hope. Because there's coming a true, righteous, and just king who will set all things right, who will overthrow the horrors of this world and bring them finally and totally to an end. There's so many things to draw from this. But what does he say? He says, the dream is true, the interpretation is sure. When God has spoken, this is how he interprets history. So wisdom then is living in light of this. Now, What's fascinating is that Jesus identifies himself as this rock. In fact, he speaks of, uh, quoting from the Psalms, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and then he gives this application. He says, either you will stumble over it and be broken, or you will fall under it and it will crush you into dust, clearly referring to this vision here. But what's the difference? See, the amazing thing is the way that Jesus' kingdom comes is different than these kings. He doesn't come conquering with bloodshed and a sword. He comes as one who is conquered. He comes as one who bleeds. The entry point to the kingdom of God is a cross. It's a crucifixion. It's a death. The stone which the builders rejected. He comes in humility. Turn with me as we close to 1 Corinthians. 
1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3, it's all about the things we've been talking about this morning, about the hidden wisdom of God. It's all about the God who reveals himself. It's all about the kingdom of God to come and the rock that brings it about. And so just notice a couple of things. First off in chapter 1, he says, verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, see the two types of wisdom there? Hidden wisdom, observable wisdom. He says, since in God's wisdom we couldn't find him, what does it say? It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, which is Christ crucified, to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Notice what he says in 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. A kingdom not made with human hands. Then notice in chapter 2, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, empire, who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God's kingdom isn't merely final or guaranteed or even glorious. It's completely different because it's a kingdom of love. Jesus is a greater Daniel who doesn't just put his life on the line for people who don't deserve it and then get off, but actually goes through it, walks through and subjects himself to his own people, to the Roman Empire, to the hardened human heart, bears everything we can throw at him, and in that is found the wisdom of God because that's not the whole story. In doing so, He took our sins upon his shoulders. In doing so, he set up a new and a better kingdom and freely invites us into it. The God who speaks, this is what Hebrews says when it opens. It says, God who is at various times and in various ways revealed himself through the prophets. Prophets, that's this. Has in these last days made himself known by his son. Let's pray. Father, we want to proclaim this morning that you are the God who reveals himself from heaven, that you are the keeper of secrets, that you are the knower of the meaning of the world and of our lives. And that you have not kept these things to yourself. You have not remained hidden. You have not waited for us to figure out how to find you. You have come. You have spoken. Even before there was anyone to hear you, Father, you spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, and there was light. 
even before we had ears to hear, Lord, you spoke and said, this is who I am. I want a relationship with you. Come and know me. Here is my kingdom. I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and a mouth to proclaim your word, to invite others to know. And I pray, Lord, that we in the wisdom of God would realign our lives in the context of the reality of a crucified king in a coming kingdom. Help us to forsake these castles made out of sand that don't matter and won't last and are align ourselves with the glorious king who is to come. Help us to endure the injustice of this life prophetically to call out that injustice and point to the way things are supposed to be, but with patience, look for a city whose builder and maker is God. And we just confess, Lord, collectively, Christian and non, that if you can be known, we want to know you better. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to speak. In Jesus' name, amen.